So Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 1, John says, Then I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he, that is Jesus, broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When the Lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. We'll stop there. So just a brief recap of where we're at now. Uh, So last time we looked at Revelation chapter 5, the entire chapter, all 14 verses, and we finished that scene in the heavenly throne room. So you had the gathered attendants there in the throne room who are worshiping the one who sits upon the throne, who is God. And then we also see these 24 elders and the four living creatures who are angelic creatures sing and they worship and they ascribe holiness to God the Father, the one who sits upon the throne. And then in chapter 5, we saw that the one who sits upon the throne has a scroll in his right hand, a scroll that is has writing on the back and on the front, and it's sealed with seven seals. And then uh, this scroll, as we said, is probably the same scroll that we see in Daniel chapter 12 or Ezekiel chapter 2, in which the angel in Daniel tells Daniel, here's this scroll, seal it until the time of the end. Well, now it's the end. We're at the end. These are the last days. But there's no one in the throne room who is worthy to take this scroll and open it. So it causes John much anguish and much pain as he sees this scroll, which contains the plans of God for the rest of redemptive history. No one is there to be able to open that. So he probably is wondering, is God's plan going to be thwarted? Will God's plans go unfulfilled? And then that's when we're introduced to this figure who is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who then also later on appears as a lamb as though it was slain. These are images that reference Jesus. Jesus now is on the scene. He comes before the throne room. Many scholars, and I agree, see this as sort of after Jesus' ascension. So he's resurrected and then he ascends into heaven and he now goes before the throne room, before God, to receive the authority over the rest of creation, to receive the authority to open the seals, to open the scrolls and pronounce uh, God's judgment on the earth now. But he is worthy because he, it says he has overcome and he overcame by his death to sin and his death to 
to our wickedness. He overcame through his resurrection and he has the victory now because he had fulfilled all these things. So he's able now to take this scroll and fulfill all of God's plans for redemptive history. And the minute then that the lamb takes that scroll, then praise breaks out again in heaven as the angelic creatures who will who are offering praise to the one on the throne, now turn their praise and worship to this lamb who was slain before the beginning of time. And they ascribe to him that worthy is the lamb to receive honor and glory and might and power because he was slain. And then he also brought redemption to all uh, of God's people. So he is worthy. He is worthy and now... As we get into chapter 6, he's going to start peeling off these seals one by one. So, you know, it would be like in Christmas, right? When you get your Christmas presents, if you're a kid, you don't wait. You don't like take one piece of tape off at a time and then, you know, slowly unfold the wrapping paper. As a kid, you're just like, you know, give me that and open it up now. And we're like, why isn't Jesus just like rip that scroll open and read the contents and end everything right now? Well, This is part of God's plan. The scroll is going to be opened slowly, seal by seal. So that sets the stage for now what we're going to see as these seven cycles of judgment that the book of Revelation now goes through from between chapter 6 and chapter 20, these cycles. The first cycle, of course, is the the seal judgments that you'll see through Revelation chapter 6 and 7 and verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, you're going to see a lot of similarities here, though, to what we see in what Jesus himself says about his own return when he tells his disciples in the Olivet Discourse and in the Gospels, uh, mostly in um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. In those chapters, since these are synoptic Gospels, they all kind of tell the same story. Jesus has his disciples before he goes to the, to the cross and they ask him a question about the, you know, the end. Well, really, it's a, it's a question that is triggered by them seeing the temple. They see the temple and they turn to Jesus and they say, look at this lovely temple. Look at the stones and look how wonderful this temple is. And Jesus says, do you marvel so much at this temple? He says, there, there's going to come a point in time where not one stone is going to be standing on another before it's before the end comes. And so the disciples are like, well, hey, tell us about that. You know, this sounds like an interesting story, Jesus. Tell us about the end of the temple. And what are also, while you're at it, tell us about the signs of your coming and the, and the end of the age. Now, keep your finger in Revelation 6, and we're going to look at Jesus, his Olivet Discourse, and Matthew's Gospel. So turn to Matthew chapter 24. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a very long discourse. But in short, this chapter, um, it's the most full treatment of Jesus' Olivet Discourse of the three Gospels that have it. And like I said, in Matthew 24, verse 3, he is asked a series of questions by his disciples that uh, about the sign of your coming and the end of the age. So if you look at the Olivet Discourse, at least is how Matthew uh, breaks it down, it can be roughly broken down into five sections, give or take. The first one, the first section would be verses 4 through 14, 
which talk about the signs of the close of the age. So what are the signs that Jesus gives as we approach the end? That's, Jesus tells, that, tells us that in verses 4 through 14. And then he goes on in verses 15 through 28 to talk about something that scholars call the great tribulation. So this great uh, suffering that comes on the earth right before the end, because then right after that in verses 29 to 31, you see now the coming of the Son of Man as he comes on the clouds of glory with the angels uh, to enact the final uh, judgment. And then there's like an interlude uh, in Matthew 24, verses 32, all the way to 25, verse 30, in which Jesus here tells a series of stories. The first one is an illustration of the fig tree, in which he says, you know, pay attention to the fig tree. When you start to see the leaves bloom, then you know the end is near. And then he goes on to say, well, no one knows the day or the hour of the return of the Son of Man. So you can kind of get an inkling as to when the end is coming, but you don't know the exact time of the return of the Son of Man because no one knows the day or the hour, which is interesting because many have tried to predict the day and the hour of Jesus' return, to which I would just point them to Matthew's Gospel and then says, no one knows the day or the hour. So how many people know the day or the hour? No one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. And then he tells in Matthew 25, or really at the end of 24 into 25, three parables. And these parables all have as the lesson or the moral of the story to be ready, to be vigilant, to be watchful, because the Son of Man can come at an hour when you don't expect. You know, a couple of those are very popular, like the the parable of the ten virgins, where you have... Five who have their lamps trimmed and ready to go and five who kind of wait to the last minute and then they hear the bridegroom coming and then the five who are unprepared go to the five who are prepared and they say, give us some of your oil. And they're like, well, if we give you some of our oil, then we're not going to have enough. So why don't you go to the store and get some? So then the five who are ready, they go out to meet the bridegroom. The five who aren't ready, they go to the store, they're delayed. And then when they go to the to the bridegroom's place, they, they knock on the door and the bridegroom says, away with you, I don't know who you are. The idea is you have to be ready, you have to be prepared, you have to be vigilant, you have to be watchful. Because you will, these signs of the close of the age will give you an idea that the end is coming. And then at the end of Matthew 25, then Jesus talks about the final judgment, where you have the sheep and the goat judgments. So those who are the righteous will be put on the the right hand of Jesus. Those who are not righteous will be put on his left hand. Those on the left hand will go to everlasting damnation. Those on the right hand will go to everlasting salvation in the kingdom. So that's a snapshot of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Now again, as I said earlier, this discourse was triggered by discussion that Jesus has with his disciples about the temple. They see the temple And they point out to Jesus the splendor and the grandeur of the structure. And then Jesus, in verse 2, predicts that this very temple will be destroyed. So again, intrigued by this response, the disciples naturally ask him when this will happen. Now, one of the things that makes and has always made uh, interpreting future prophecy difficult is an idea or a concept that people call telescoping. Okay? Okay. The idea of telescoping is 
Um, most prophecies in the Old Testament have a near fulfillment, and then they also have a more ultimate or a far fulfillment. Okay, so they have some kind of fulfillment that will happen now, sort of like a partial fulfillment, and then later on they have a more ultimate, consummate, more full fulfillment, if you will. Now you may ask, do you have an example of that? I'm glad you asked. I do have an example of that. Think of the prophecy that was given to David by Nathan regarding his son in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. But in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14, when David wants to build a temple for God, he is given a prophecy by the prophet Nathan who comes up to him and tells him that he's going to have a son and that that son, he shall build a house for my name. And then God says through the prophet, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now you hear that prophecy and clearly the near fulfillment of that prophecy was in David's son, Solomon, who did actually build the temple for the Lord in Jerusalem when David was dead and Solomon became king. And he built a temple to the Lord. But it's also equally clear that it has a much farther fulfillment or an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the greater son of David, who is the king. He's often referred to as the son of David, and he too will build a house for the Lord, except this house will be a spiritual house, a temple that is made up of believers, right? Again, as you from this morning's sermon, the temple. Uh, the believers together, we are the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is described as a temple, as a house unto the Lord in Ephesians 2 and other places. So we have the same thing here in the Olivet Discourse. So a near fulfillment of this would be the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD when the Romans come and they finally just wipe out Jerusalem raised it to the ground and the Jews are scattered throughout all over the place. Okay, that's the near fulfillment of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And that destruction of the temple marked basically the end of the old age of the Jewish religion. Okay, so think of the book of Hebrews again. I think I mentioned this earlier too. I'm not sure in what context, but in the book of Hebrews All of the book of Hebrews basically is written to Jewish Christians who are, because of temptation and because of persecution, are tempted to sort of reject Christ and then go back to their Jewish religion. Okay, they're rejecting Christ because of the persecution that they're facing by being Christians. So they want to reject that and they want to go back to the old way when they didn't get persecuted nearly as much for just being normal Jews. And all throughout, the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that because Christ is better than the high priest. Christ is better than Moses. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Jesus entered a better heavenly temple to bring a better sacrifice. His one sacrifice ended all of the sacrifices that the Jewish religion required. So Jesus is far better. Why would you leave that to go back to something that is done? Now, many scholars believe the book of Hebrews was written before A.D. 70. So, I mean, it wouldn't make sense to be talking about the temple and sacrifices if the temple was gone. But if you want a sign, a clear sign that that 
old way of doing things, the old Jewish way of doing things was no more, look no further than A.D. 70 when God, in his judgment, wipes out the temple and basically says, no more sacrifice. Because it is done. When Jesus died on the cross, what were his words? Or at least one of his final words. It is finished. (laughs) Right? You don't have to sacrifice anymore. The blood of bulls and goats is not enough to, to satisfy the wrath of God. It was a symbol that was given to point to Christ who was the fulfillment of all that. So the destruction of the temple marked the end of the old age but it prefigures a far greater destruction and a far greater tribulation that we'll see prior to the return of Christ. So as we see the Olivet Discourse, near fulfillment would be AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Far fulfillment would be the end of all things when Christ returns at the end of the age and you see the great tribulation at the end. Now, for our purposes tonight, I want to just focus in the Olivet Discourse on verses 4 through 14, which if you have a Bible that has headings in it, it might say the signs of the end of the age or the signs of the close of the age, if you've got things like that in there. And in verse 4, Jesus, in answering their question, where in verse 3 says, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And then in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So these things here that Jesus talks about, as he says in verse 8, are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. Okay, women, if you've had children, (laughs) you know that if you you start having some contractions, it doesn't mean that that's when the baby's going to come, but it means that the baby's probably going to be coming at some point in the near future. So you better start getting ready You might need to go to the hospital and all these things before the birth actually happens. But these are just the beginning of birth pangs. And this entire period, which is what I'm going to argue, this entire period from the time of Christ's resurrection till his return are the labor pains. Okay, These are the labor pains of the end coming. The birth pangs are coming. And then these will all be pointing that eventually the end will come when Jesus returns. And that's... In a sense, when the baby is born, if you will. But all you see in here are the signs of the close of the age. So this period of time, again, from the time of Christ's resurrection to the time of his return, is a time that is marked by nine things. First, you see are many false Christs and Messiahs. So you have many false teachers out there claiming to be a Christ, 
claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the next great religious leader. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. You're going to see tumult between kingdoms and nations. You're going to see famines and natural disasters. You're going to see a great persecution of believers. You're going to see, even within the church, betrayals and apostasy. People will start betraying one another. They'll they'll reject the faith. They'll turn away from the faith. You'll see many false prophets leading many astray. You'll see increased wickedness and lawlessness. And then finally, you'll see the worldwide reach of the gospel. Now I ask you, doesn't that sound kind of like what you see today? (laughs) What you've seen for the last 50 years, 100 years? Probably see going on further until the end when Christ finally does return? As I said, what is remarkable about this description that Jesus has here about his own return, or at least the signs of the end of the age, is that it not only can be applied to that time right before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, But as I said, it also aptly describes the entire period between Christ's resurrection and his return. Again, it's something you open up the papers or you turn on the news and you see all these things. Wars, rumors of wars, you see false prophets, you see wickedness, you see, uh, I mean, the gospel is going forth. All these things all describe this whole period of time. So now as we head into Revelation 6, so you could turn back to Revelation 6. I want us to keep Jesus' teaching here from that Olivet Discourse in mind as we start looking now at the sealed judgments. And the reason I want to do that is because I believe that the sealed judgments parallel these signs of the close of the age that we saw in Matthew 24. In other words, the seven seals mark the period of time between Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and his return in glory, which we'll see when we look The next time when we look at the sixth seal, that to me describes his return at the end of the age. But we're going to look at the first four this week. Now, this will differ from both those. So what we're going to what we're going to talk about here is going to differ from uh, both those who hold a preterist view and those who hold a futurist view. So, again, this is where I said. This is what makes this period of time, or these these chapters, I should say, difficult to interpret. Because depending on how you view the book of Revelation as a whole will determine how you interpret each section of it. Okay? Now, if you remember, anybody remember what the preterist view was? Think pre. What does pre mean? Before. Okay. So the preterist view believes that most of Revelation was actually fulfilled at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That the only thing that's left to to happen is the return of Christ and then the final judgment. So from the preterist view, everything in Revelation is fulfilled except for Christ's return. Okay, now there's another view, a full preterist view, which says even the return of Christ has already been fulfilled. That is a heretical view. So if you hear of anybody who's a full preterist, you just kind of, Shun them. <laughs> but, um, but the partial preterist view says most of what you see in Revelation has already been fulfilled with the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 at the hands of the Romans. The futurist view, which kind of the, the view, the name of the view kind of gives away what it means. It means that everything you see here in Revelation chapter 6 and on is way off in the future. 
that talks about some period uh, that is yet to come. Now, if you know anybody of a dispensational frame of mind, our dispensational brothers and sisters, they see the seals as well as the trumpets and the bulls as judgments during what they call the Great Tribulation. Now, that's different than what the Great Tribulation I said earlier is. For them, for the dispensationalists, the Great Tribulation is a seven-year period of time that happens after the rapture of the church. So at the end of the church age, the church is raptured out. Christ comes in a kind of secret return with trumpets and shouts of angels, which to me doesn't indicate that it's very secret if you're hearing trumpets and shouts of angels. But anyway, he comes, he takes the church out of the world, and then now he can get back onto his program for Israel. So this whole seven-year period of this tribulation is a period in which God is bringing judgment on the world, and he's trying to gather Israel now to himself and make them believers so that they will go into the kingdom. So the, the seven-year period, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, all these judgments happen during this tribulation period. And at the end of the tribulation period, Christ comes, he conquers everybody, sets up the millennial kingdom, which goes for a thousand years, and then there's another rebellion, and then there's another return, and then there's another judgment, and then you've got the eternal state. So if you're a dispensationalist, you've got two returns of Christ, two judgments, and two, you know, two, you know, this is, you're, you're doubling everything. So you've got double vision. You need a better pair of glasses, I think. But our view, of course, is different. And as I said, and I'm going to argue throughout as we go through Revelation, that what we see here, particularly with the seals, talks about this period of time that we call, well, we're effectively in the millennium now. Okay, Jesus is king. He has ascended into, into the heavenly throne room. He has received glory and honor and power and might when he received the scroll from the hand of the Father. He is now reigning, and now he is executing God's plans until his return in glory at the end of the age. We are now in the millennium, and what we see here in these seals takes place during this whole entire period from his return or from his resurrection to his return. Now, all that brings us into Revelation 6. Sorry for the long intro. <laughs> so the first seal here we see in verses 1 and 2. Uh, so after you have the heavenly praise chorus in chapters 4 and 5, for the lamb, the lamb is now seen with the scroll in his hand and he breaks off the first of the seven seals and we see in verses 1 and 2, John says, then I saw, it's usually, a, whenever you see that phrase, then I saw, it's usually indicating like a new vision, okay? So then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, come. I need a deep bass voice for that, right? You know, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, a couple of things to say first, and that is the seals, as we'll see, represent judgment. Every time he breaks a seal, this is an act of judgment happening on the world as Christ is slowly, very patiently opening these seals and releasing the judgment of God upon mankind. Now, all of these seals must be broken. Remember, this, the scroll is sealed, and it cannot be opened unless all the seals are broken so that you can read the contents of the scroll. 
So we, they must all be broken until God's purposes and plans can be fully revealed. So then as he breaks that first seal, one of these four living creatures, the cherubim, the ones with the eyes and the faces of a lion and man and ox and an eagle, one of them says to John, come over here and let's look. So he's being invited by one of the cherubim to come and witness as Jesus begins to execute God's final judgment. And this is a pattern that's going to repeat itself for the first four seals. So then John reports that he looked and behold, I see something now. So that first seal breaks and unleashes this first of these four horsemen, these mysterious horsemen, the horsemen of the apocalypse. Again, they're not, you know, it's not the Notre Dame backfield from the 40s. These are actual judgments on the world. And these horsemen resemble visions that we see in the Old Testament as well in the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah 1 and in Zechariah chapter 6. Um, you, you could turn there if you'd like. I'm just gonna, I'll read them. But in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, is the first time we see these horsemen. And Zechariah says, I saw at night, this is in verse 8 of chapter 1, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him. So you've got a person on a red horse and three other horses. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So these four horsemen are out now patrolling the earth, kind of like on a recon mission. Okay, they're out patrolling and they're doing these things. And then later on in chapter six, we get a little more info on these four uh, horsemen. In chapter six, starting in verse one, reading through verse eight, we see the four chariots. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked and behold, sounds like what John said. Four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot, black horses, with the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, see, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased the, my wrath in the land of the north. So we see now these horses, after they do their little reconnaissance mission, are sent forth to execute God's wrath on Israel's enemies, on Israel's neighbors. This is where John is drawing these images from as he sees these four horsemen as well. So he, Jesus opens the first seal. You got this rider on a white horse. So this one is given a bow or he has a bow and he's given a crown. Now the $64,000 question, of course, is who is the rider on the white horse? Anybody have any ideas? 
I was running out of time. I didn't have a chance to study this. I'm hoping you guys can help me. We'll figure this out as we go along. Of course, I'm kidding. I did study. What's that? Okay, that's one option, the Antichrist. Any other options? I've got at least three. What's the opposite of the Antichrist? Christ. Okay, so that's two. Third one? Okay, don't worry about it. I'll tell you who the third one is. (laughs) So again, the three main options. Now, the first one is Jesus Christ. Now, actually, when I saw that, I was actually a little shocked because I had never heard that before, that it was Jesus Christ. But there are some very prominent Reformed scholars who believe that this is Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because later on in Revelation 19, we see Jesus come at the end of the age. He's riding on a white horse. He's got crowns on his head. And with the sword of his mouth, he comes and defeats his enemies. So he comes conquering with the sword. And here this horse This rider on the white horse comes conquering and to conquer. And of course, in that verse in Revelation 19, Jesus is crowned with many crowns. That's a great name for a song, right? Crowned with many crowns. But he comes conquering with the gospel. That's that's the idea of this white rider here. So he is conquering with the gospel. So the gospel is going forth. It is conquering the unbelief and the wickedness in the world and bringing people to Christ. So that's one option. The second option, of course, is, as Leota said, the Antichrist. This is, a pop, this is very popular amongst dispensationalists. And then the Antichrist is so, supposed to be sort of like a cheap knockoff of Christ. So he comes on a white horse. He's got a crown. He's got a bow. But, if, you know, of course, the bow has no arrows. At least it doesn't tell us it has arrows. So here he comes conquering as sort of like a false messiah, which in a way kind of fits with what we saw in the Olivet Discourse, right? You'll see many people coming, claiming to be Christ, claiming to be messiahs. So some think that this is the Antichrist, this final figure that comes and conquers and starts, you know, the, you know, the, the great push against the armies of God. So those are the first two. The, now the, the last one is what I like to call the spirit of conquest. Okay, the spirit of conquest. Now, as I was reading and studying this, I think this fits in better with the other three horsemen. Because you have conquest, which leads to war, which leads to famine, which leads to death. And of course, it also fits better with the vision that we just saw in Zechariah. Because these four horsemen, they're spirits, they're angels, they're sent by God to patrol the earth and bring judgment. So it makes sense that this horseman is like the other three horsemen. That he's not Jesus, but he, and he's not the Antichrist, but he's just another one of these four spirits of judgment coming forth into the earth with the spirit of conquest. Another reason why it's not Jesus, or at least it's the spirit of conquest, is because it would seem odd for Jesus to break a seal that calls forth Jesus, <laughs> you, know, you know, so it'd be like Jesus sitting there. It's like, okay, I now open the first seal and behold, it's me on the white horse. You know, it's like, it seems a little odd that Jesus would be summoning himself. Now, the other, another reason too, is that white horses aren't exactly unique to Jesus. Okay. See, a lot of people key on that color white and think, well, white means what righteousness, it means holiness, it means purity. So of course, only Jesus would be righteous and holy and pure, but in history, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be unusual to see conquering 
emperors or kings or warlords ride into victory after their military conquests on white horses as they parade their victory to all the conquered people. So after giving you those three options, Jesus, Antichrist, or the spirit of conquest, how many people think it's Jesus? Okay, we still got a few. How many people think it's the Antichrist? Still got at least one or two. How many people think it's the spirit of conquest? Okay, we've got a few. People are like raising their hands like this. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to. Well, <laughs> my vote is number three. My vote is number three that it's the spirit of conquest. So as the first seal of judgment is opened by Jesus, the seal unleashes the judgment of military and political conquest upon the world. And if you think about it, that's kind of what we've seen throughout the whole history of the world, right? You've seen centuries of kingdoms and nations fighting and rising and falling and people coming in and claiming to be great leaders and warlords. I mean, think of the visions again of the Old Testament, the visions that Daniel has of the four kingdoms that will come after Babylon. He's in Babylon. He gets a vision of you know, the, the Babylonian Empire, then that will fall and give way to the Persian Empire, then that will fall and give way to the Greek Empire, and then that will fall and give way to the Roman Empire. And that just covers the period of time from Daniel until now. The rise and fall of kingdoms as these great warlords and kings and emperors think that they can conquer the world and they come and then they bring war after them. So all these people, these strong men promising peace and tranquility, again, think of the Roman Empire, and what did they have? They had the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. But it was a Roman peace that was brought through military conquest and subjugation and basically a slave rulership over conquered nations. In other words, you will be Roman <laughs> by hook or by crook. We're going to make you Romans, you know. So you've got the spirit of conquest coming forth and seeking to destabilize and bring chaos instead of peace and tranquility. So then what happens with kings and rulers when they go out with a mindset of conquest? Well, then war inevitably follows, which is what we see in verses 3 and 4. So when the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So the first one has a crown and a bow and has given him uh, the authority to conquer. The second one comes out, it's, he's given a sword, and he has the authority to remove peace from the world. So this writer now rides forth and he takes peace from the earth. Now it's interesting because you consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, where he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now here, Jesus, of course, is referring to the conflict that you have that arises between people, even in the same family, when the gospel goes forth, right? You know, the gospel goes forth, it converts some people in the family, others are not converted. That brings division in the family. But Jesus is like, yes, I came to, in a sense, bring that division because I came to bring the gospel. But here in Revelation 6, verse 4, Jesus here is giving this red rider the power to remove peace from the world. And this too also is a judgment. Again, think back to the Olivet Discourse when we read through that. One of the signs of the close of the age is what? It was wars and rumors of wars. 
So this red rider goes forth and he brings forth war. He, he takes that sword that was given to him and the ability to remove peace from the earth. And now men slay one another. War is an ugly reminder of the curse and the fall, right? The first recorded sin after the fall was what? Cain's murder of his brother Abel. That's the first recorded sin in the Bible after the fall. And men have been killing one another ever since. The history of mankind from the fall onward is one of of lack of peace, of murder, of anger, all kinds of wickedness. And it started very early on. And really, you know, as you see humanity get more and more sophisticated, as you see our technology improve and, and we, you know, we have the ability to make life much easier for everybody, but we also see that we have the ability to make it easier to kill people in more and interesting ways, right? Think of World War II. We, you know, we, you know the, the same energy that we use to you know, at least if they weren't afraid of things like Three Mile Island and Fukushima, to warm houses and to power our our appliances, the nuclear energy was used in a bomb to drop on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to basically literally blow them out of the war. These great, you know, uh, instruments of, of mass death. We see this even when we had the Iraq War of 20 year or so years ago, where the, you know, the, the Iraqis were releasing you know, uh, weapons of mass destruction on their own people. It's just all, the, all this wickedness, all this evil to, to kill. As, as we've gotten more and more sophisticated, we become just more and more efficient at killing one another. You know, it kind of raises the question, has there ever been a moment of true peace? I mean, of true peace ever in the history of mankind? There's always, inevitably, somewhere on this planet where there's people fighting against one another. We may be at peace now, here, in this country, in this town, or whatever, but somewhere across the globe, someone's killing one another. So this writer comes in the wake of conquering warlords, and he brings violence and war and bloodshed. Yeah, I mean, red is clearly uh, and it, yeah, anger and blood and things like that. Yeah, clearly uh, the imagery here is uh, poignant, as we will also see with, with the black horse, which we're coming up to now. So now we look at the breaking of the third seal in verses 5 and 6. So when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of wheat or barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So now John looks and he sees, after the breaking of this third seal, a black horse. And the one riding on it had a pair of scales in his hand. As we'll see in a moment, these scales are for measuring. They're for measuring. Uh, The using of scales was common to weigh out grain and determine the prices of the grain that you're about to buy. And this rider on the black horse now will be given some form of control over food and the price of food. Now we also see something a little new in verse 6 because we didn't see this in the first two seals, 
But with the breaking of the third seal, you now hear another voice. This is not the voice of one of the living creatures telling John to come and see. This is a voice from between the creatures and amongst the creatures and the, and the, the, the elders. And it rings out and tells them, do not, you know, it says a, you know, a, a quart of wheat for uh, a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. So what, what in the world is going on here? So yeah, the first thing to note is that the prices here for wheat and barley in those days is exorbitantly high. Okay, so a denarius was commonly understood to be a day's wage for for labor or for a soldier, and you know three three quarts of wheat or a quart of barley or a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley. It's not a lot of grain, and you're basically paying an entire day's wage to get a little bit of food. So this. This high price here indicates scarcity, you know. So the law of you know, supply and demand applies even in the Revelation, right? So if the supply is low, the price goes up. So you don't, so you don't damage the supply. If, if the price stayed low, then we run out. So you raise the prices so that you don't run out of wheat or barley. So this, this scarcity that you see here is indicated by famine, which is the third horse here, the black horse. The second thing to note here is that this command to not damage the oil and wine suggests a limiting factor for this judgment. Okay, Think of the plagues in Exodus when uh, God was bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt. Many of those plagues had limiting factors, right? It's like it's going to fall on here, but the land of Goshen is going to be spared where my people are. Okay, So here God is saying or Christ is saying, don't harm or don't damage the oil and the wine. So we're going to damage the wheat and the barley harvests, but the oil and the wine will be left alone. Now, some commentators suggest or argue that oil and wine were very typical crops, very easy crops to grow in Asia Minor. So it wouldn't, you know, a famine necessarily wouldn't necessarily damage it too much, but that wheat and barley was kind of foreign to the area or very hard to grow in that area, which would suggest why there were shortages of those. But this third writer here represents famine, which usually comes on the heels of war as, com- as, as the conflict, uh, as the supply lines are disrupted or destroyed during any kind of conflict, right? You know, war damages your supply lines, it damages a lot of your industry in the area. So as a, a natural result of a lot of war, you're going to have hunger or famine or the you know, normal supply lines will get disrupted or destroyed. Now, again, there can be many natural reasons as to why a famine can, can occur. You know, weather conditions, moisture levels, ground quality, all these things. But the nature of these seal judgments indicates that it's best to see a progression, as we've been saying. So you've got the conquest, which leads to war. And you've got the war, which leads to famine and other shortages. And of course, this too was a sign of the close of the age that Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse. You will see famines and earthquakes. So you will see shortages and you'll see natural disasters in Matthew 24, 7. Now, back to that limiting factor uh, of the famine uh, only to the wheat and barley tells us that we're in a period here again between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So these judgments that we see here, they're not final judgment. Okay, this is, this is a, a period of 
kind of progressive judgments as we get close to the end. It's part of living in what we're calling here the last days. We are in the last days. We are in the last days ever since Christ died and ascended into heaven. We are in the last days because the only other thing remaining on the prophetic calendar is Christ's return. So we are in the last days. Now you're like, well, the last days are going for a long time. Yes, but then remember that what you know, Peter says that for the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So from the Lord's way of calculating time, it's, it's a short period. For us, it's, it could be a long period, but we are in the last days. And these things here, conquest, war, famine, they disrupt the normal way of life in the world and are meant to show the faithful that final judgment is indeed coming. Again, remember, these are the birth pangs. Pay attention to the signs of the close of the age. The end is coming. It's not here yet, but the end is coming. And the people of God are, it's also to show that the people of God are not dependent or should not be dependent upon the rise and fall of nations, right? Christians have existed throughout many, you know, rise and fall of many nations and empires. Our, our citizenship isn't in the United States. It's not in the United Kingdom or the British Empire. It's not in the French Empire. It's not in the Roman Empire. Our citizenship is where? In heaven, exactly. And we await our king to return. So we are not dependent on the rise and fall of nations. We need to be dependent upon God and, and wait on God. So that now brings us to the fourth and final seal It is broken, and the fourth living creature speaks to John in verses 7 and 8. So when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard a voice, or the voice of the fourth living creature, saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now the fourth and final rider comes at the behest of the fourth living creature, and he rides what at least I have here is an ashen horse. I know what does the New King James say? Pale or pale? Okay. Any other translations out here besides New King James? Liz, you have a an ESV, right? What does, you, does yours say? Pale, pale horse. Okay. So literally, the word in the Greek is means green. Okay, so, so it's a green horse. Now, but when you apply, you know, the, the color green to a person, what does that imply? That you're sick, right? You know, if you've got a smartphone, you've got the, the kind of the, the, the vomit emoji, he's green, right? <laughs> okay. You're green with sickness. So when, you, when you're green with sickness, you kind of have this kind of sickly, pale look to yourself. You've lost your color, which is why it's often referred to as a pale horse or an ashen horse. But the point is, is that the writer's name is Death. Okay, does yours have a capital D for Death? Okay, mine has a capital D too. So proper name, and Hades, or the grave, follows. And of course, this is the inevitable result of conquest, war, and famine. It leads to death. But here too, we also see another limiting factor with this writer. Is he's only allowed to kill one-fourth of the population of the earth. Now, some see that and they say, well, this obviously must point to some judgment in the future because we have never seen a plague or a natural disaster destroy one fourth of the Earth's population in one in one shot. 
But again, it's best not to see this as a single event, but as something that happens during this entire period, which we're calling, again, the last days leading up to the return of Christ. During this period, many will die. Up to a fourth of the population of the world will die as a result of all these conquests, wars, and famines, and all the other things that come after that. And again, this, this writer is allowed to kill people by a variety of means. He can kill with the sword, which is war. He can kill with famine through hunger. He can kill with pestilence. And in the, in the Greek, it's literally, you're killing him with death. That's what it says in the Greek. You're, you kill him with death. Or the diseases that come from war and famine. But as death rides and he claims all these lives, Haiti, the graves, or Hades, the grave, follows in his wake to sort of swallow up all these souls as they're, as they're, as they're dying. They go into the grave. So that is the four seals, the first four. Now, there are three more to go, but these first four are pretty dreadful to say the least, right? But when we have, like I said, three more to go. But these four horsemen, as they ride, they're bringing their judgment here on the wicked and the unrepentant. And if you remember from our study in Romans, in Romans 1.18, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed even now. This is the wrath of God being ex- expressed in the world as God removes his restraining hand from mankind and allows us to then go to the full effects of our sin, to reap the consequences of our sin. Now, these judgments, as we've been pointing out, some of them at least have some limits that is imposed upon God or imposed by God, I should say, for reasons which we will see next time, um, particularly uh, in the fifth seal with the martyrs, it says, you know, in um, verse 11, as the martyrs cry from out the, under the altar, it says there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So these judgments will be, the full judgment, I should say, will be held in abeyance until that full number of the martyrs is, has been completed. But it's sobering to hear this and then to look at the world around us and consider that even now we're experiencing the wrath of God. Now, not we, the church, but the we, the world in general, right? Because the dam now of God's wrath is, being, is beginning to overflow and judgment now is starting to spill and come onto all the unbelievers, these are the signs of the close of the age. Disputes between nations, wars, famine, death, all these things. And Jesus says these are just the beginnings. <laughs> this is just the beginning of the birth pains. It's sort of like God is warming up. You know, if, you're, if God were a piano player, he's sitting there cracking his knuckles and getting ready to limber his fingers before he actually starts to play the piano. Or maybe to use a sports metaphor, God is sitting there taking his warm-up swings before he's about to step up to the plate and execute judgment. But these things will continue until the end of this current evil age. The four horsemen of the apocalypse will continue to ride, bringing their judgment upon upon those who are willfully defiant of God and his son Jesus. Which is all the more reason why the gospel of the kingdom of God shall be preached to the whole world. Because what is the only way to avoid the wrath that is to come? It is to preach and believe the gospel, right? 
the gospel of Jesus Christ as the lamb who was slain and who bears that wrath, who bears that wrath that is coming in your place. If you place your faith and trust in Christ, that wrath has been born and been taken by Jesus Christ in your place. Now we're going to have a long break until the next time because uh, the next Sunday that we normally would do this would be Easter Sunday, but we're not going to meet for Easter Sunday. Uh, We will then meet on the third Sunday of April, which is April 18th.